Sunday, I'm driving back from the beach, and I get a phone call from uh, Josh Tierengal, the executive producer of Vice News Tonight, and he says, you know, that he's sitting on some of the best documentary footage in the world right now, like the only footage out there inside the Charlottesville protests. The email was, hey, we have a story that we're working on which has to be fast-tracked. Who's available to work Sunday? We have the story, three to five minutes. We want to try and air it Monday night. Who's available? And I responded, I'm, I'm in. Vice News Tonight's Charlottesville Race and Terror began as an idea for a five-minute piece that producer and reporter Ellie Reeve pitched a few days before the Unite the Right rally was scheduled to take place on a mid-August weekend in 2017. During the rally, hundreds of white nationalists, alt-writers, and neo-Nazis who had traveled to Charlottesville, Virginia, clashed with counter-protesters, leaving three people dead and many more injured. Only Vice had captured the story from a position deeply embedded within the leadership of the white nationalists. The resulting half-hour program, broadcast on Vice on HBO that Monday, August 14th, received over 65 million views in the first week. I'm Isabel Siderni, and in this episode of Frame by Frame, we'll talk with executive producer and editor Tim Clancy, post-production supervisor Mike Morrison, picture editors John Chimples, Cameron Dennis, and Dennis Thomas, and find out about how the episode came together in less than 30 hours. Editor John Chimples was the first to begin working with the footage the afternoon of Sunday, August 13th. This thing had been growing since Monday when Ellie first mentioned it to the uh, news division and said, you know, I think there might be something going on in Virginia this weekend. And they said, ah, it doesn't look big yet. Wednesday, she came back and said, you know, there might actually be a thousand people down there. And that began the process of gearing up to go cover it. But no one, I, I don't think even at that point, they expected what ended up happening. I don't think anybody knew. So I came in at one the producer was there. The material had already begun to be processed. I started working with the material I had at 1 o'clock Sunday afternoon. At 4, Josh Tarangiel came in and said, what's it look like? He had been getting information from the field that things were really ramping up. And I said, holy shit, it's amazing. What had you seen or heard at that point that elicited well, that reaction. Well, the Tiki March, the Torch March was amazing. I mean, you knew right away that we were going to start with that and with the who, 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 who. I mean, I think the first time I saw that footage, I said to myself, okay, that's the beginning of this piece. And um, Josh Tarangio came back in at 10 o'clock that night and said that HBO's given us the entire half hour. I said, so I'm here all night. And he said, yes. And I ended up cutting till nine o'clock in the morning when I handed off to the other editors. Yeah. So I was there from one o'clock at Sunday afternoon. And I was the only cutter until Monday morning. I mean, Josh was there. Josh Davis, the producer, was in and out, but he had been up for 48 hours. He was just a wreck. And it was the first time we had turned around something that quickly into a 30-minute show. I mean, we'd, we'd done a couple previously, but they'd been a day or two at the least. So this was a very big ask. That's post-production supervisor Mike Morrison, who oversaw the post-production workflow, making sure all was aligned between the various departments to meet a 5 p.m. deadline Monday night. You know, 
because of the nature of the shoot, uh, it was truly run and gun and not, you know, it was impossible to carefully plan. They're running, jumping into vans, going here, going there. Right. So the footage, making that, get, organizing that footage in a way that was uh, made my editing effective was a big challenge. And the crew was already in place to absorb that material and prepare it for even just a five minute edit. They're also they're also organising material, but they're they're working with the producers. We have to run everything for a transcription service to make sure they can start scripting. You know, there's loads of different processes in place. I mean, I think at one point we actually even got our London bureau to help out doing some graphics. We asked our LA bureau, like we were just asking all the various offices to try and offload some work. So I just called all my, cause I look after the teams across all the offices, and I was like, guys, we just need you all to start helping out here. I was organising till about one maybe midnight or one and then i started cutting because I, I i was like i have to start cutting this footage you know do you remember how much how many hours there was total to i mean it was two crews two sound guys i guessed at 40 hours between the two cameras over the three days about two o'clock i started actually editing and got through probably a decently fine rough cut of the first six or seven minutes I mean, eventually I handed off a 40-minute rough cut, but the first six or seven minutes were a really fine rough cut that ended up sort of living through the rest of the editorial process. When producer Josh Tarangiel got the green light from HBO to expand what was initially a five-minute piece into a half-hour special, he called editor and executive producer-at-large Tim Clancy, who specialized in longer-format documentary pieces for Vice on HBO. I didn't work on Vice News Tonight. I was executive producer of our long-form documentary series. Like I'm not a, I don't come from a news background. I come from a documentary background. So, my focus is more long-form documentary versus short-form news. And I think the reason he called me was because he knew that this wasn't going to be, you know, what was supposed to be a three to five minute package just became, a, you know, what what ultimately was a 24 minute piece that was a lot more documentary than news. And basically he called me looking for editors. So he was like, look, I need great editors who come, who can, I just remember him saying, I need great editors who can work independently, uh, are great with story, uh, and, you know, won't, won't hesitate. Like, we don't have a lot of time on this. And then, you know, this will make me sound arrogant, but I was just like, well, you know, I started as an editor. I was uh, started with Vice as an editor, and I've been editing on the show, like the show that I ran, I would, you know, everybody would go home. I'd stay here till three in the morning editing. So it's like, I love editing. So I was like, well, if you're asking who my top editors are, I'd, I'd like to put my name in the ring for that. Uh, and I gave him a list. He was like, well, you know, if you could work on it, you know, work on it with me. Basically, I came in at 7 a.m. on Monday. And basically what the way he left me was, let's cook up a plan for how we would make 20, like about 25 minutes in a day. So when I came in that Monday, I didn't know exactly what we had, but we watched uh, the string out that John had put together, which was a little over 20, probably 25 minutes, a mix of scenes, and then some things were, you know, just selects on a timeline of what would essentially become like act one and act two of the story, because we didn't yet have the uh, footage from the final scene, the final day. So we basically had the Saturday footage, the Friday and Saturday footage, and we we're missing the Sunday footage. And this is Monday at 7 a.m.? What Monday time is this? Se- Monday at 7 a.m. 
what impression are you getting from what you're seeing? I thought the footage was amazing. And production nailed it on this, where it like the access was incredible, the crew was incredible, and the footage is, especially when you have two days to edit a thing, or a little, like, under 36 hours. And then my, my whole editing philosophy and storytelling philosophy was I'm a huge believer in three-act structure, act one, act two, act three, separated by plot points. And, and in documentaries, to me, I'm like, well, ideas are our plot points. So it's like, you know, we need to hook people early and then lay out an idea that will then cause our second act. And then the third act has to flip it on its head and make people really think. And uh, to me, that's the challenge in doing a long-form piece where you're like, okay, how do we tell this story? Because sometimes the stories are really difficult to tell because they're heady, it's archival, it's whatever. But on this one, it's a linear journey. So it's like, it, we're literally, it's just we're following the events as they happen. So I'm just, all I see is the numbers in the matrix when I'm watching that string out with Josh. And... What do you mean you see the numbers in the matrix? Like, how are we going to do this? So from a strategic standpoint, this is still 7.30. This is just like the thoughts that are going through my head of like how we'd cut it. So I'm like, okay, great. Well, we've got a natural act one. We've got a clear plot point to the second act. There's a very natural build over the course of the day. I think like John Chimples had already worked through the night putting together a very, 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 very heroic uh, 20 to 25 minutes. And basically we divided up the cut so I was like I'd like act one I want the turn to the second act and I want the build Denny took the plot point which is a huge deal so that was four to five minutes of content right there and uh, Cameron took the final act which I didn't know what it was but that ended up being about five minutes too because part of the question Josh is asking me when I watch that string out is can we do this like that was that was like question number one can we do this and then the answer was yes and then the question after that is, how do we do it? With footage still arriving, executive producers called on editor Cameron Dennis, known as an ace who could deliver in fast turnaround for same-day broadcast. I didn't know anything was going on or that this was even in the pipeline, so I was actually in to work on a piece about um, the Dota Championships. It's this video game championship thing that happens in Seattle. So I was in there at like 7 thinking that that piece was going to go Monday night. And then I think at like maybe 8 a.m., Madeline, one of our executive producers, came into my edit bay and was like, hey, I need you to like finish the end of this thing, which, you know, happens pretty regularly, you know, like, or we kind of share each other's workloads. So when she said, I need you to cut the end of this thing, I thought maybe it was like picking up for one of the other guys. The cutting producer, Patty, came into my room and was like, no, this is a special, and you're going to cut the end. And they told me which three scenes I was going to cut. So I had from the vigil to the end. So it was basically the vigil, Jason Kessler's rally, and then the final interview with Chris Cantwell. In the hotel room. In the hotel room, yep. The field team was actually sending selects of the interview on... Monday afternoon, so they were feeding the parts that they thought would ultimately end in the piece, and our executive producer, Madeline, called an audible and started trying to find a different alternate sound bites for the end, so then I think they refed that interview, parts of that interview at like 3 o'clock, and then we reassembled it, and yeah. So you're live streaming footage into the MAM 
as you're editing it. Yes. Yes. So you're working with a source clip, and that clip is getting longer as you're working with it. So you can be working with the beginning while the ending is just coming through. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard wire to the server. The feed comes in via MCR. It's a, tech, it's a piece of kit we've got in place that's really valuable to us. As Cam was drilling down on footage for the third act, editor Denny Thomas was just walking into his edit suite after receiving an email that weekend about a subject he didn't quite know anything about yet. So I get here at nine and I'm ushered into this room and I meet uh, John and Cam and Tim Clancy and the producer Josh Davis over there. And uh, they brief me on what has happened. I was asked to work on the middle part, which was the accident. Well, not the accident, actually. It was um, premeditated murder, I think. And uh, so that demonstration part was the only part that I was going to work on. It was very much cutting that middle part in isolation because I don't really know what came before, what's coming after. And uh, we had a catching producer here, Patricia Guerra, who was great, who actually came into the room and uh, really explained to me what has what's going on. How and are you tracking how these scenes are fitting together to tell an like an overarching story? Are you guys communicating between one another? Is to be honest, uh, that whole day, no, I did not have communications with. Cameron in his room or Tim in his room. And the first time I saw all of it was when it was playing live in the control room. Yeah. I'd actually never met any of them either. Yeah, Cameron and I <laughs> had actually not worked together at all and had really not. I don't think I even met Chimples before. Yeah, we. <laughs> I certainly didn't know Tim. You asked a question of who was keeping track of what was going on. Josh yeah. was, Madeline was. Um, and the, Patricia Guerra. Patricia Guerra was... Um, I think they were getting information from the field, from Tracy Jarrett, and uh, Shauna was probably involved by that time, Shauna Thomas. So there there were people who had the whole story in their head and knew what the editors needed to accomplish, um, even though the editors were working kind of in silos. Certainly, initially, the idea, we decided early on that we would follow the chronology of the three days. And that limited some of our the choices we had to make. It was mostly editing out bites and going for the big, clear events that happened over those three days. And it wasn't exactly chronological completely, but pretty much. And so we were telling the story as it unfolded and kind of editing real time as events were happening. Because events were happening Sunday while I was cutting that then Cam and Denny ended up editing, you know, Monday morning. And were they having any kind of feedback sessions with you? Were they saying, like, I, I, I need you to emphasize this or tell, talk to me about so, that? So, I mean, the cutting directions were really coming from, like, JT and the producers. Yeah, I, th I think I had screened the piece twice, um, once early on and then once, or when I say piece, I mean my section of the edit. One thing that I, I do remember that kind of changed creatively is in the uh, vigil scene, we recognized that, to John's point, after they had viewed what Denny and Tim had going in Chimples, then they came into my room and screened and recognized that we could, you know, play with some of those interviews more than I had in my original cut. 
we were giving, you know, so much time to Cantwell's side of the story that based on the people that were at the vigil, we could also tell the story of the people that lived in that town, but were also African-American. So uh, that was one one thought was to let the people of the neighborhood actually say um, more stuff on camera. So that's it, it kind of pivoted from being just a verite scene of the vigil itself into then having some recap interviews with people in the town um, with Ellie. Right. And that was really just in the third part, the third act that Cam was cutting. The the up up through I think Heather's murder, um, everything kind of was on track and stayed pretty much the same. Um, and then the nuance or the changes or the development came in that third act, because the you know people had something incredible to react to, and there was a lot of emotion of a reflective nature as opposed to uh, immediate nature. For me, what, uh, the point that stood out the most in what I was cutting, which was some of the worst things that I've seen, that was the murder of Heather Heyer. That was the aftermath of the car ramming into dozens of people who are lying on the street bleeding. There are people trying to help each other. There are people trying to do CPR. There is because of what had happened, there was a fight that broke out. They were angry at the media people for filming this, but at the same time, it was like, no, this has to be seen. I remember that we had a lot of footage of exactly what happened to Heather, and uh, it was... You mean like showing her body? Yes. When I was cutting, I realized that this is not something that I can make a decision on at all. I'm uh, really glad that Madeline, uh, the executive producer, came into the room. She saw it and she's like, yeah, we didn't, we do not need to show this. And I was like, thank you. I needed to have someone, someone say that to me because I was very uncomfortable with it myself. And it was so good to have somebody like uh, Madeline over there saying that, yes, no, we, we're not going to do this. That's why it was more interesting I felt to get the reactions of the people who were around there. And there was this one gentleman who starts yelling at camera and he was yelling, not at us, he was yelling at the city, which allowed these guys to come into their town. And just, there was no editing needed for that. It was a perfect, perfect moment. And it, I just knew that I had to let it play, let him speak and walk away. And, uh, that's that that was one of the most important things in that section that I was getting. A lot of what we do we have to remember is up until we air at seven thirty, if anything changes in the news that could change our our edits, our episodes. So the constant sort of dialogue between like, cool, is this still the case? Are our facts still straight? The legal teams were constantly reviewing what we put out, HBO legal teams were reviewing it because we have to be very careful that even though we've worked on it for two days is it still current? Is it still accurate? Is it still right? So the fact-checking is really important. But obviously with a story of this magnitude and it's our first 30 minutes, you know, like covering a story like this, I have um, a tremendous post-production supervisor, Jill Cristiano. Um, and so the two of us were working together planning how, you know, the, you know, the division of labor, what we need to, to do. I mean, this comes from everything from like checking sync, obviously the organizations, subtitling making graphics you know it's a never-ending list we always knew this was like it's like a looming kind of 
cloud over us. Like, can we do this? Do we have the people in place? Do we have the right people, the right kit? Um, what I saw when I came back at two was Tim working with Josh to work out kind of how the graphics would play. I'm sure the graphics team, which is um, really inventive here, um, uh, you know, sometimes really simple graphic treatments can take a lot of work in terms of getting the finesse right. And uh, Tim and JT worked together to do that. I'm sure, again, I'm sure with the graphics team. We um, didn't have any voiceover. And that was a, a, an incredible decision, I think, because it just opens with these graphic cards sh telling you the time of day and uh, the date and it just goes into it and then it gets broken up in these three sections that we were cutting. Each opens with a graphic card that tells you the time of day and what uh, what date it was. Um, there comes a point where we have to start locking sections of the story because we have to go through color and mix. We um, are an Adobe Premiere facility here. It's what we used to edit. We've also mix and color in Adobe Premiere. We were constantly running new versions of the edit because obviously we thought it was locked. It would slightly change, updates to be made. Once it's been through the color and mix process, it then goes into our control room. We have three finishing editors who are just there to kind of make sure that it's good for air, do last-minute checks, screen it with the EPs one last time. They're based in the control room. And then as as each piece is like signed off, for the final time, it then goes into our VizRT and we obviously play it out of the control room, live. I had to hand off the first half of the cut at 5 p.m. It was like 5, 5.30, something like that. Uh, Vice News Tonight is on at 7.30. So uh, I, think it pro I think it probably took them about an hour to stitch it together, get it ready to go in the control room. I'll it's somewhere between 6.30 and 7 when we start watching it as it goes out. And how do you feel? I think probably that's the point where it starts to register when you're watching it on the big screen with like 50 people around, huddled around this control room. The atmosphere is like electric where people are just like, and it's electric not because we're all sitting around being like, oh my God, we're, we, we like, let's put ourselves in the back. It's more like, I can't believe we pulled this off and there's going to be a TV show that's on the air. Uh, like if, if when I got a call driving home from the beach, if Josh had called me and said, hey, I have this project and it's going to like 50 million people around the world are going to watch it and it's going to become like the one of the most high profile things the company's ever done. And, you know, a year, a year later, you'll be talking to wonderful people on a podcast about it. Then maybe I would have come into work a little more stressed out, you know, like, because you're gonna be like, oh, damn, that's crazy. Well, we got to live up to that. But at the time, you're just trying to make a thing. You're just trying to like be like, wow, we got this amazing footage. Let's tell the story as well as we can in the time that we have to tell it. So there's a moment before it starts airing where you're just like, damn, I can't believe this is real. Like, I, wow, okay, cool, well, we did it. it. I mean, it was the first time we did something like that, and it friggin' worked. And that was really cool. I mean, I, you know, I thought. It's like we went back to the garage for a day. And then you're like, oh, damn, like, we just went back to basics. And we just had an interesting correspondent in an insane situation, and they followed it. And we just did our best. And we didn't, we weren't trying to compete with Frontline or we weren't trying to compete with 60. We weren't, you know what I mean? Like we weren't trying to be the smartest people in the room. We were just doing what we do best, which is we followed the story. You know, uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Producers and uh, the shooters, I would give them so much of, of course, all the credit belongs to them that they were able to make this. And honestly, the camera guys, just on it. Fearless. Yeah, fearless. And that is literally the word I would think about, to jump into that van of these crazy people, crazy maniacs. Well, with, and the, I mean, the, the, when they when the two sides were clashing downtown after they got out of the van, too, I mean, Orlando was, Zach was saying, yeah, Orlando's like, no, get in there, get in there, we got to get in there. That's when we realized the impact. That first night when it played yeah. on HBO, we were like, okay, it's done. But we got it out there. It was amazing that HBO realized that we are going to put this on YouTube and Facebook immediately. Well, when when I saw it on CNN, I'm not sure when yeah, that's that was. Heavy it for was me like, too. holy shit! Probably man. the next morning. Literally yeah, the next all day. the could news have been channels. like noon on Monday on Tuesday, maybe. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure when it was, but that was like holy. Because we, you know, our new our our edit bays have glass. Well, at least mine has a glass wall that looks out into the production area with big monitors everywhere. And I started seeing the Tiki March on all the yeah. um, twenty four hour cable networks, and I was like, "Holy shit!" And went outside and just was, you know, was like, "Wow." Yeah, we have a uh, TV with uh, that size with quad split. Um, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and uh, BBC. BBC. And uh, there was this moment I remember that I was outside of my edit room and just watching like each one in the span of like 20, 25 minutes was playing a tiny clip from uh, what we had cut. And uh, yeah, it was our footage because yeah. I mean, I knew it. it, it sometimes you work on stories that yeah. other people, yeah, it had Vice News, but it just the impact of seeing footage that I had been working with, you know, Sunday night, it was like, yeah, this is our team. Everybody's, you know, we were there. Ellie got the story. No one else had it like we had it. And that was, I was, I mean, I was, I was proud, you know, of Vice at that point. I mean, I'm, I, it's a great place, but. I mean, that was really intense. The first couple of days when it was, when I saw that it was touching 25 million and then 30 million, it was, honestly, it was, uh, for me, it was the biggest thing that I've ever done. And to know that so many people are watching it, it, it was amazing. It was the beginning of kind of the, I would not say that it's the end for them. They have kind of crawled back into their holes a little bit, but it happened with Charlottesville. There certainly, was a lot of certainly didn't help. Certainly didn't help Cantwell's yeah. profile. Yeah, <laughs> and there was a lot of infighting that happened among these alt-right leaders, Richard Spencer, Chris Cantwell, and Jason Kessler, because of Charlottesville. And uh, Richard Spencer, who is one of the uh, one of the most famous white supremacists, neo-Nazis in the country, we Ellie and Josh Davis did another story with him close to a year after Charlottesville that Cameron and I worked on. Mm. And uh, you could see, first of all, he openly blames Vice for being there and showing all of that stuff for how it has affected him and his movement. How has it affected him? Because um, now anywhere he goes, there are going to be, there's going to be so much resistance. He got deplatformed by... Uh, uh, internet companies where he was running his website. He got uh, all these major online uh, financial groups like PayPal 
refused to work with him. So it has really affected his organization, and not just his, but a lot of these white supremacists. And uh, it has been admitted by him that it was because of the story that we made. Because it's like, oh, you guys showed... He believes that we showed one side of the story, but obviously we anybody who would see it would uh, disagree. Yeah, and what is the other side of that story? The other side is exactly what President Donald Trump said the day <laughs> after, that there were good people on both sides. And that is what made him very happy to hear uh, the president believe that there were good people on his side and there were bad people like Antifa on the other side. So he um, has lost a lot of his power. He was trying to go on college tours and reach out to young minds, but you can see that nobody wants to actually give him that time anymore. There are not even college students who would go and listen to him thinking that, oh, he makes a good point. No, because they have actually seen what his views and his ideas lead to. Yeah, and it's not a question of free speech. We gave him all the, you know, we gave him 20 minutes of free speech, and this is how people are reacting to it, so fine. Thank goodness. I mean, Shine a big light. Yeah. That's what... Hopefully, it uh, also shows the bravery of uh, reporters like Ellie and mm. producers like Josh mm. when... Uh, the president talks about fake news and if a viewer watches what these guys did and uh, the situations that they went into to tell the story without fear and uh, if a viewer sees that and realizes that yeah it's not really fake news they're putting themselves on the line on in danger to bring us these stories i i i would really say that she's one of the most one of the bravest correspondents that we have uh, the last time I spoke to Elle, she said she was working on a piece, kind of the counter side for uh, telling a story about Antifa. Is that come to bear or is that finished or are you, that's still in the works? That is the story that uh, Cameron and I were working on a, oh, year, okay. a year later, ago. but uh, the problem was that not a lot of Antifa people wanted to be on camera. Mm. But we have spoken to the Antifa people. Who was it who did, uh, did Michael Moynihan, Michael Moynihan did a, sat down with Antifa before the Charlottesville, mm. and did a, a really interesting piece about that and talking about why, you know, how can you be on the left and, you know, be a progressive and carry a gun, mm. you know, and they were very clear about their reasons. So, hmm. I mean, I think we generally try and if it's, we try and tell as many sides of the story as we can and usually try and find a side that no one else is telling. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is the strength of our, our news show. Even even after the Charlottesville piece, you know, if you've ever met our executive producer, Madeline, you know, she won't let your head get too big because she'll tell you, you know, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> so, like, you know, that was one of the cool things about, you know, we did that piece Monday. I was back on another piece Tuesday. Um We've done, I don't know, 10 specials since then. Um, and, and again, you, you guys mentioned the Kavanaugh piece, which was a day, a half hour day of piece. Yeah. I mean, so we threw all the editors on that one. And then um, me and another guy, Rio Ikigami, finished it. But that was, that was, in a lot of ways, even 
um, a tighter turnaround than Charlottesville was because six crews were sending footage over sat trucks and live view and over fiber um, starting at like 8 a.m. on that day, and we delivered it that night. So we've, we've kept the ball rolling, and I think that's what's most exciting for me is, you know, one day at Charlottesville or one day we catch a sat feed out of North Korea or I'm working on a piece about paintball or, like, you know, uh, I think that's what's the most fun is that the diversity of what we're trying to do. And there's always more. And there's always more. More important stories to tell. Four or five nights a week, that's it. <laughs> Frame by Frame is produced with the support of Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. This episode was produced by myself, Isabel Siderni, and Ben Baker. The recording engineer was Mitchell Racken of Vice Media, Brooklyn, New York. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Frame by Frame with the picture editors Kate Sanford and Tim Strito of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs>